It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Hi, I am Neil Ellingson. I am the editor slash producer of the Preachers on Preaching podcast. I have no idea where Matt is right now, so I'm happy to be the one to introduce this conversation he had with Jim Wallace, founder and editor of Sojourners Magazine, a leading voice in the evangelical left. It's a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I want to apologize for the sound quality of this conversation. As you may have noticed, if you've been listening, we've been getting better and better, but this one is a clear instance of backsliding, um, so we're sorry, and we're going to repent of our ways. If you know of a preacher who you think would be an interesting guest on our show, please send us an email at preachers at christiancentury.org. Thanks so much for listening. Can we talk a little bit about your 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 own background in the church? You were raised in Detroit, is that right? Detroit, Plymouth Brethren Evangelical Okay, church. so an Anabaptist Brethren Church? Oh, it, it was actually a, more, a, more evangelical Baptist-like. Okay. We would have said the Baptists are the closest to being Christians. <laughs> the, the rest are not even in, in, the, in the conversation. But uh, uh, it, it was the early church just did it the way the Plymouth Brethren did. Then there were you know, a couple people getting it wrong, and we got it right again. You know, we're very, very humble. And yet it was all about your relationship to God. Your personal relationship to God. And then, of course, your sexual behavior. It was pretty much what it it was about. Mm. So when I was six years old, um, uh, we had a revival preacher come to the the Dunning Park Chapel where my my parents started the place. So we were Ah. the first family. My father was an engineer, and businessman, but no clergy in the brethren, so he was kind of the, the lead elder and pastor. Lovely people, and uh, but they were worried. I had to sit in the front row at six because I hadn't been saved yet, and and all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front for this revival preacher, because uh, the closer you are to a sermon, the more impactful it has. The blessings are up front. Saved kids at the front. I mean, I, you know, they're worried. I'm getting up in years. I'm six. And I haven't been saved yet. And so uh, he begins to preach fire as can be. And uh, it felt like he pointed his finger right at me. Mm-hmm. And he said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by yourself. It got my attention. And I realized I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. <laughs> and so I asked my mother how to fix this. And she told me about the love of God, not the wrath. And God wanted me to be in his family. And so I signed up at six. Uh, but my real conversion came when I was a teenager. And I began to listen to my city of Detroit. And I was reading the papers now and watching the news and just paying attention to conversations. And I asked, how come we live so differently in white Detroit than just a few miles or blocks away in black Detroit. And I hear there are black churches. We never went to a black church or had a black preacher come to us. There were Plymouth Brethren black churches mm-hmm. who knew about us, but we didn't know about It was that segregated. Completely. And so I began to go into the city 
uh, as much as I could, I would sometimes like at my driver's license, drive in, park, and walk around. And I, something about the city just drew me and attracted me. And I would take jobs in the city, working along young black guys, same age as me, but we'd grown up in different countries yeah. in the same city, black and white Detroit. Remember I came home from one of those visits, and uh, my church wouldn't ever discuss any of this. I kept saying, something very big is wrong uh, with our city and this country. So it feels very big to me and our church. And who is this minister in the South named King? Mm. What's he up to? And they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk. Your church wouldn't acknowledge it. And one day an elder said to me, he said, Jim, you have to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. <laughs> and their faith is personal. And that's the night that I left in my head and my heart because the thing that was tearing me up as a young man that I was on my mind, my heart, I was just preoccupied with had nothing to do with my faith. Were you able to see the presence of Christ in the movement at that point or in at least in that tension that you were feeling in your own heart or was it more your church was Christianity for you, it was blind, therefore the faith itself was not for you? If the elder was right and uh, my faith had nothing to do with racism and that was political and our faith was personal, then I wanted nothing to do with it either. And so I left. Yeah. I had in my heart. And I joined the student movements of my time, civil rights movement and anti-war movement. And then I came back to my faith at university after being, you know, after organizing, we could put 10,000 people in the street in about two hours' time back in those days. Tear gas, beat up, death threats, all of that. Was that all in Detroit, or where did you go? I went to Detroit and Michigan State. Okay. So uh, it was organizing the big, uh, you know, national student strike in 1970. We shut down the country universities, biggest march in D.C. since King's March. Yeah. That fall, half a million people. But but I, was that all through like SDS in those groups or was it? Well, all those groups. Yeah, Michigan State wasn't SDS, but all all those groups. I was one of the student strike leaders. But there wasn't a faith component that you were participating oh, in. In fact, uh, uh, you know the uh, I remember one time Michigan State uh, campus crusade was picketing our little mark. Well, we had a big rally and they were picketing, and they said real peace is through Jesus. Now, some of our peace marshals grabbed these guys by the scruff of the neck and brought them back to the to the to the to the to the, the rally behind the rock and said, "We found these parasites, Christian parasites. We're going to take take them out and take take them out." I said, "Wait a minute, guys! You're you're peace marshals. This is a peace movement. Uh, leave them with me." So their little camps crusade terrified uh, leafleters. I said, "Okay, guys." I think I understand uh, you better than you might suspect, because mm -hmm. I come from that world. Tell me what real peace through Jesus means. Well, it means that real peace is through Jesus, and that's the only... I said, okay, okay, but what does it mean for the 300 Vietnamese civilians who were bombed and killed today by U.S. warplanes? Mm -hmm. And went back and forth. Finally, they, they, they said... Uh, uh, it, it means we should bomb, bomb those people to hell. 
I said, that's what I thought you meant by real peace with Jesus. So that was Campus Crusade. So that didn't that conversation didn't lead you to a deeper encounter with your own faith. It probably distanced it. And inner varsity Christian fellowship was more moderate. Okay. They kept saying, well, we're praying about this. What does our faith mean for the war in Vietnam? We're praying about this. They prayed all through the war and never figured out what it meant. Then the liberal campus minister, uh, I think it was the Wesleyan Center, they were, he came to me and said, you know, you're the real church. So our facility is available to you, and we want you to come and speak. And, and I, I knew we weren't the real church. He had nothing to say to me about how, how, how Christian faith has something to bring, mm. fundamentally, to Because I knew that I wanted to be an activist now for the rest of my life, but I had no foundation for it. So I'm reading Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, and Karl Marx, like we all were back then. And I wasn't satisfied with what I was reading. And finally, I decided to go back to the scripture. I want to interrupt just for a sec. So when the liberal campus ministry came to you and sort of ceded the authority of the church, right? You're the church. Why didn't that grab a hold of you? Because I knew it wasn't right. I I knew that he he said, I've got nothing to say to you. Mm -hmm. And, And you're, because I knew the movement was full of all kinds of stuff. And our lives were full of all kinds of stuff. It was contradictions and inconsistencies. And I didn't think we had a foundation. So he was idealizing the movement. And and he had nothing to say to it. He literally acted like he had nothing to say to us Mm. as radical students. It was just kind of a use our building for whatever you want. Rather than be grounded in our truth. Grounding in faith. uh, And also, what kind of personal transformation is required to be, and what, what I said in that tape that you, that you started with, this announcement of the kingdom of God has a whole new order. It's come to change the world and us with it, mm-hmm. changing everything personally, spiritually, economically, politically, socially. And I didn't hear that from either side yeah. of the debate. Yeah. And so then I went back to the New Testament, and that's when I discovered the book of Matthew, and Matthew 25, which became my conversion text, which was far, here's the, the Son of God, Son of Man, sitting in judgment of all those who name his name. They all think they belong to him. And he's saying, how you treat these people uh, is how I think you treat me. How much you love that is how much you love me. The Pope just said that mm-hmm. a few weeks ago here in the United States. And I never heard that from Che Guevara, Karl Marx, or Ho Chi Minh. More radical than anything I ever read. So I signed up to be a Christian. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School right here in Deerfield to have an argument with my own tradition, mm. my own evangelical. Were you intentional about that going in? Yeah. I could have gone to Union or Yale, yeah. where they would have agreed with my politics and anti-war views. But I wanted to go back to my tradition and have a biblical argument with what, in fact, the gospel meant. Because this gospel of the kingdom was very different than the privatized message that I had gotten my whole life. I mean, here were people in my little church at Dunning Park Chapel who really, really wanted uh, to love and follow Jesus. But then they kept at arm's length. Yeah. All the people Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 and didn't know them, didn't know any of them. And, and, and the gospel was so narrowed 
I remember I was uh, dating a young girl in the church, and um, we were going to go out to see The Sound of Music, the movie one night. Her father literally stood in the doorway, blocking our exit, and said to her, if you go out and see this movie, you'll be trampling on everything we have raised you to believe about being a Christian. Wow. He knew that being a Christian was being different than the world. But he, he made his stand uh, against Julie Andrews instead of racism, militarism, and materialism. He, he just missed the whole teaching of Jesus. Then he watched the movie a year later on Sunday night after church at home. So it's boiled down to this very private, private sometimes petty, which personal is, moralism. Do you think that I've noticed an interesting thing in my lifetime as an adult Christian where, thanks to your leadership and others, the evangelical church has become much more politically engaged, right? These very things that you're talking about are, are there's practically been a revolution. At the same time, the mainline church, we have this historical legacy of theological legacy of understanding God in abstract terms as love, as justice. And so what a Christian does, and I'm being critical of my own tradition here, but what a Christian does is try to align herself or himself with these abstract values. Um, and what we don't have is a personal relationship with God, a per certainly not a personal relationship with Jesus. We don't even want to talk that way. Um, so do you think, and, and so what I've noticed is even as the evangelical church has become more socially engaged, there is a self-corrective moment happening in the mainline church where we're moving toward a more personal piety out of, I think, a sense of like the deficiency of, of our own tradition. Have you, do you think it's possible to be engaged in as a Christian in a movement for social justice without that private personal relationship with Jesus? Is it a precondition? I think you just expressed very well the hope for the future here. When sojourners began, we talked about the need for a personal and a social gospel, personal transformation. It's, it's uh, you know, it's like um, Jesus is saying in the Gospels, if you want to be part of this new order, the change in you is, is likened to being born again. Born again in order to participate in this new order of things. Yeah. And so when the mainline churches moved away from that personal salvation, transformation, and went to kind of, as you put it, uh, uh, position, social positions. They eventually lost a lot of their own people who finally just became so conformed to the culture. There wasn't, I remember in Chicago being invited to um, mainline churches. I won't mention which, which, which ones, but I remember, uh, and I was preaching what Jesus called us to. And I literally felt like people uh, were very wealthy, were listening, wealthy mainline churches. And the coat racks were amazing, the kind of coats and coat racks. Uh, and it's like they didn't care um, mm. what Jesus called us to. They just thought I was radical and wrong. The evangelicals had to care. They had to prove me wrong. Because it was Jesus calling them. Jesus. Yeah. And they had, I, th that's why the argument with Trinity 
was so important. And so we literally found 2,000 verses. We found every text in the Bible about the poor as seminarians. 2,000 verses we found. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, it was the second most dominant thing. Idolatry is first, this was second. In the, in the Synoptic Gospels, one of every 16 verses is about the poor, the oppressed, the marginal. In Luke, it's one of every seven. I didn't name my first son after Luke Skywalker. Uh, and so one of my colleagues, who's still with us, took an old Bible and cut out of the Bible every reference to the poor. And, and it, was just, it was just all over the floor. Mm. And when he was done, the Bible was in shreds, tatters. It was a Bible full of holes. I would take the Bible out with me to preach. I would say, brothers and sisters, this is our American Bible. It's full of holes from all we've no, paid no attention. We might as well just get a Bible and start cutting, because that's what we've done. Uh, and that became a serious conversation, truly, because you're saying, that this is biblical authority. So bringing this up to two weeks ago, teaching in Georgetown, my class at the McCord School of Public Policy, there's a Chinese woman in the class. Uh, policy person. She's been here 15 days, uh, never read the Bible, and she hears in my class there are 2,000 verses about the poor. So she writes in her reflection for the next week, so I, I never heard that before, I've never read about the Bible. I wondered how the Bible regards the rich, the wealthy. Uh, so I googled it. <laughs> I googled it. And you know, uh, it's pretty negative about the wealthy. She Googled it, right? And a camel through the eye of a needle, a rich man. She had all these scriptures because she Googled it, you know? Now, Christians, my, my TA says to her, he's amazed, he said, Christians would never get that because they're, they're looking at their world and living in affluent cultures. But your fresh eyes, Googling it, found what the Bible says about the poor. So if we're Christians and the Bible means something to us and we're evangelicals and authority of scripture, then pay attention to, to, to what it has to say. So, so then the American Bible Society and World Vision a couple of years ago put together, no, British Bible Society, then the American, and World Vision put together uh, uh, the Poverty Bible, where they took all the scriptures off the floor where we had left them, and they referred to that story at, at our seminary that we did, and put them back in, in World Vision Orange. Mm -hmm. So they're putting the Bible back together again. And to me, a new generation in both evangelical, mainstream Catholic churches, a new generation, is really putting the scriptures back together again. So this isn't about left or right. Uh, it's not about uh, social action. It's restoring the Word of God in our and lives, our churches, our neighborhoods. From what I hear, it's what you're doing here. And our nation. And to me, that's going to be evangelical and mainstream and Catholic. And it's putting uh, a gospel is meant to change us and the world. Well, and without personal transformation, you will get lost in conformity to the world unless you have that change. So you can't. And I think this is the, this is where churches like my tradition have fallen down. There's this assumption that we can somehow leap over Jesus to get to the kingdom, right? Like leap straight into sanctification without being justified, without without that personal relationship. And I sometimes feel like the mainline church, one of the things that we can learn from sojourners 
and the impact that you've had is to actually, in a strange way, take a step backwards to slow down and concentrate, not on our sort of personal private moralism, but on our own individual relationships with God um, in order to get to the outcome that I think, you know, on paper, at least our churches have wanted for a long time. I think that's true. And our history really is we put out what was then back, back in the post-American predecessor to Sojourners in Chicago here. And it was like putting a flag up the flagpole. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were feeling those things, but couldn't see each other, came to the bottom of the flagpole and met each other. Literally a shoebox of subscribers. And they were evangelicals who really were hungry for uh, a biblical uh, uh, understanding of justice. And they're mainline people who were drawn back to a personal faith, but they trusted us on justice issues. So they're able to come and say, I want that personal faith. And people who were like me, movement people, seekers, who finally were open to this kind of faith. And so our constituency literally is about a third evangelical, a third mainline, a third Catholic. Mm. And th- to this day. To this day. And sprinkled yeah. throughout our, our lots of black churches and Hispanic and Asian American now. But, but, but so I have always been deeply drawn to people from the mainline churches who, who love the justice commitment of sojourners but see the call to a personal faith that they weren't finding in their own churches. Yeah. So I think what you're articulating is really the future because on the inside, we're never going to trust the inside for justice. But movements from the outside will change the inside. That's what Dr. King did. That's what Wesley did. That's what Francis is calling for. So I think we're building a movement now on the outside that I'm very hopeful about. I see young people, you know, when you're my age and care about movements, you do a lot of mentoring of young emerging leaders. They're going to be very one-on-one kinds of things. And uh, I'm very encouraged by what I see happening in the country. And we're, 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 we're really changing hearts and minds on these issues. But politics is blocking all of it. Uh, it's dysfunctional. It is polarized. It is uh, out of control. It is controlled by money and power. How do you, with the access to the inside that you have personally and that Sojourners has... How do you keep an outside perspective? How do you how do you avoid being swallowed by the by the power, by the allure, and the when when Obama was uh, elected, the first time uh, and I I knew him when he was in Chicago, so we were friends long before he was first friend I've had that became president of the state. Some became friends after president, been like Carter, but he was the first. So I remember the first meeting inside the White House that I had with, with him, uh, uh, I, I couldn't get through security because I'd been arrested so often outside the White House. I was in all the security lists. And they, Obama's office had called down and said, no, he's okay, he's okay, let him in. I had to be escorted inside because you never know what someone like me might do. I think in some ways it's uh, easier and safer to be arrested outside the White House that have meetings inside the White House mm. because of that tension, because of that ability of power to corrupt and control. And literally, I remember I once came out of a meeting, a prayer breakfast with uh, 
President Clinton, about 20 faith leaders. And I said to a companion, um, the White House makes you stutter. Because you want to stand up, and when you stand up to speak, I could feel the when I did that, as a, actually I was a former stutterer as a kid a long time ago. People don't believe that because I'm a public speaker, but I stuttered terribly as a kid. And I felt the pressure to, to stutter. And I said, because the truth stutters in places of power. Wow. And how do you speak that in places of power? And I remember, so it's always the, the test. And power wants to... So the test is if you're feeling that. You've got to speak the truth. Yeah. Uh, the, and they don't want that. Right. You know, on, the, on the inside. So it's always, uh, unless you're risking being at the table, every time you're at the table, you're in real danger. Uh, I remember a time on... Unless you're risking being kicked out yeah, of the table. It'll be your last conversation because power in Washington, everything is about access. And no one asks uh, access for what. It's just access. As an end to itself. Yeah, so if they, if they return your calls, or they call you, or they invite you in, they think that should be enough for you. Just being there mm. at the table, having your name in front of you on this card with the White House or in Congress the same way. It's a great temptation. Because they think that's your end, too, right? They to get that access. If you're going to make trouble, I remember, I remember a very particular conversation that I haven't ever written about, but uh, it was about the sequester, the content of the sequester, which was meant to get agreement with Democrats in the budget. And I knew they would never get agreement, so they would implement the sequester. So a year and a half before... They're talking about the, what will the sequester be. So we had a meeting with the president and all of his economic team. And our team was the Roman Catholic bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, National Council of Churches, Salvation Army. It was not a left-wing group. It was the whole spectrum. And the president and his team were there. What to put in the sequester was the issue. And I remember the bishop wonderfully said, Mr. President, the text that brings us to this table from Matthew 25, does not say, as you've done to the middle class, you've done to me. It says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. President Obama said, I know that text. And I said, I know you do. Therefore, we are asking you to exempt um, low-income entitlements from the sequester. Exempt spending funding for critical, effective, low-income people's programs. Their team said no. We argued for an hour. They said no. We walked away. Two hours later, they called and said, the presidents agree. We will exempt low-income people. That protects millions of people mm -hmm. from this question. So you used, it was scripture that, that turned scripture. the key. And we argued. We didn't, we didn't walk away. Right. We you know, the meeting was over, we said, this is what you must do. Two months later, I got called in by one of his top people who said, if you and your colleagues hadn't pushed, really pushed him on this, that exemption would not have been wow. sequestered. 
and this is a guy that always spoke to me honestly from the inside, behind the scenes guy. And he said, so keep banging on these doors. Because he said, quote, in the, in the places, houses of power in the city, there are very few champions for the poor. Those moments where you're, and I can tell you other stories where we weren't listened to and we kept. But you have to push when you're there. Your point about access makes me think of the story in the 10th chapter of Mark where James and John asked Jesus, when you come into power, can we be seating at your left hand and your right hand? And the question of what that means, what's going to happen is beyond them, right? It's just, can we be there with you? And it's, it is that literally a seating thing. Yeah. Where they seat you in the Roosevelt room. Yeah. How close the president, who's across from the president, who's going to lead the meeting. It's, it's all very political. And I think it's a real challenge to genuinely prophetic leadership to see yourself rooted outside those places. Even when you have access to them. There, you can't be rooted there. You've got to be uh, a movements outside, constituents outside, people fighting every day. Like we Civil Rights Act in 1964 and a Voting Rights Act in 65 because of, yes, Birmingham and Selma, but not just those events. It was millions of decisions made every day by people across the country, often sacrificial, often risky, even uh, life-threatening, even life-ending decisions. That made for a movement that allowed King finally to navigate on the inside from the power on the outside and finally get those things done. Now we must do that on the criminal justice system, on immigration reform, on, uh, on poverty, on trafficking. On How about for local preachers who are preaching to the same congregation week in and week out? I have a friend, actually he was the, my predecessor at the first church I served, and he told a story of at an annual meeting of the congregation um, a, a motion that was made. This is a small blue-collar labor church here in the city, left-leaning in some ways. Um, and the, mo- the motion came off the floor at the congregational meeting to fire him unless he agreed to stop preaching about El Salvador. Uh, this is back in the 80s. And I, I, he told me that story, and I remember thinking about it on two levels. One, he had provoked something from within the congregation that was good. You know, he was causing them to, to have a confrontation with, with, with the gospel in a way. But also, for the folks sitting there hearing it week in and week out, I could also just see they, they'd heard it. They got it. The, a friend of mine tells a story of sitting in church and, and the, uh, a, a man next or listening to a social justice sermon. And the man next to her leaned over to her and said, I know... I think I know what God wants from me. I've been listening for a long time. What I want to know is who the God is that wants it. Um, Do you think like for local preachers, is there a, some sort of magic ratio of, of social justice to back to that personal relationship or like, what what are, what are techniques that we can use to keep people's ears fresh, to be faithful without becoming you know, that line between being prophetic and being moralistic in a different kind of way that's also alienating? It's a great question. Um, I would say a few things. One is, you have to love your people enough to preach the gospel to them, number one. But you have to love your people while you preach the gospel to them. 
So a friend of mine told me, Pastor, he was preaching against the war in Iraq. Very prophetically and provocatively and, and controversially. And he met with one of his, his people afterwards, one of the leaders of the church, who said, I almost stood up today, walked to the center of the aisle, and swore at you and said, shut the, you know. Why didn't you, says the pastor? Because when my wife was dying, you were there with us all the time. And you loved her, and you loved me. And that gives you the credibility to preach the gospel as you understand it. So there's a pastoral integrity question along with prophetic preaching. Yeah. And third, I would say, we can't just preach positions or stances or what government should and shouldn't do. It's got to be about us. What are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do in our own lives? I think no matter where we are, we have to ask those personal questions. And that brings us back to, indeed, who is this God who's calling us? And what does this God want in relationship to us? So rather than prophetically railing against the government, not that we shouldn't do that, but also we ought to be asking the question, what does that mean right here for us at First Church wherever? Well, I, I, I often say when I'm preaching in a church, I'll say, um, we, we, are, we, are, we are speaking of a God who wants relationship with us. Now, this God knows everything about every one of us in this room. I look around, and they're all thinking about their lives. And I said, and yet he wants a relationship with us anyway. But why? Why so we can join this new movement, this kingdom of God, this new order? He wants us to join Join with him, with her, in our in changing the world. Yeah. He wants us to help change the world, but he wants us to change our lives so that we can help change the world. Yeah. And it was just getting to a different political position, particularly if that's against our culture and our class and our race and all the rest. It's just not going to work. That's just railing. But somehow it's got to go deeper. I always say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. What does that mean to go? deeper here. And so I want, uh, you know, and this has to happen at every level. I remember I was giving the closing remarks of all places at Davos, the World Economic Forum, the year before last. I was surprised I was giving the closing remarks. It was almost a sermon. Yeah. They said, you can just preach. And I said, um, we have talked about the excluded in this meeting. Bill Gates has been here. Bono's been but you know, look around, look at each other. This is the most included room on the planet. This room is the most included. The Pope had written a letter to the CEOs read the first night that said wealth should serve humanity and not rule it. Mm -hmm. So I had that clerical first night and I, I ended as a clergy person. I never had a Davos where there was clergy bookends at both, both ends. And I said, so here's the motto on the wall. It said, the World Economic Forum, 
our mission uh, committed to improving improving the state of the world. So we're going to have some music now because they gave me this cello baker to do an original composition. And, and I said, and I, she was going to do it after mine, and I said, let's do it together. I said, listen to the music and ask yourself what you're going to change when you go home. It's going to cost you something mm. to improve the state of the world. But you put it back on. Back to them. It's interesting. It kind of loops back to your experience as a six-year-old. Yeah. In the front of the sanctuary, yeah. right? The end is different, but that that personal confrontation is is similar. Friend of mine in the audience said, "These are these are the CEOs around the world." He said, "They all stopped talking. Mm-hmm. No one left. Nobody came in, and Jim, they bowed their heads <laughs> while the music was going on. And at the party afterwards, I had several coming up just in tears." Or if I just railed against a position, it had been an intellectual argument. And they would have, they wouldn't even have listened. Yeah. yeah. But so, it, it, this is about a God who wants relationship with us. Yeah. And the Pope made that so clear. I mean, uh, the first thing he said uh, when he became Pope to the world to us was, I am a sinner. Those were his first words mm-hmm. to us. I am a sinner. At the end, in Philadelphia, he said, please pray for me. Don't forget. He's, he gets up every morning before 4.30 to pray. He wasn't just announcing positions from Catholic social teaching. By the way, we're for, um, uh, immigrant, we're for reform the immigration system. By the way, you should vote for that. He didn't do that. In fact, he talked to immigrants in Spanish, and he said, never forget who you are. Be who you are. Be who God made you to be. Come to this country being who you are. And they had been demonized for weeks by Donald Trump and by other candidates. And he told them uh, to trust who God made them mm-hmm. to be. It was deeply, deeply affirming, more than just immigration. Right. You know, uh, he, was, he, he was calling on us. He said, I was the son of a new immigrant, me. Yeah. And, uh, and this country was built. He made his point by going deeper. You know? Not by staking out a policy claim. The... That's that's great, and it's very helpful. Um, and I think it's part of what makes your own voice so unique is 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 the ability to to straddle. And I, I wanted to ask about your understanding of your activism as proclamation. Um, and I wanted to share a quote from somebody who I I think is a favorite of yours, um, John Stott, from from his book uh, Between Two Worlds: The Challenge of Preaching Today. So here's the, here's the stock quote. We need to remember the doctrine of revelation. It is a basic tenet of the Christian religion that we believe what we believe, not because human beings have invented it, but because God has revealed it. In consequence, there is an authority inherent in Christianity, which can never be destroyed. Preachers who share this assurance see themselves as trustees of divine revelation or as Paul expressed it, stewards of the mysteries of God. When you're engaging in the activism that you lead, do you understand it as proclamation? I mean, does, is it separate somehow from stewarding the mysteries of God in a pulpit? Or are they? how are they linked or how are they separate from each other? It's proclamation. You also use the word authority. Yeah. Uh, I remember when 
at Davos, uh, Jim Kim, who's the president of the World Bank, uh, we met there and he said he wanted to talk. Now, that's what people do at Davos and then on follow-up, but he did. I went over there and he said, he's changing the World Bank, where he's saying um, economic growth does not necessarily lead to overcoming poverty, unless you aim at that. He's changing the whole ethos there. He said, so we have the evidence now of what overcomes poverty. We don't have the moral authority or the constituency to turn this around. So we need an alliance with the faith community. <laughs> Jim Kim, who used to protest outside the World Bank, who's actually a good friend of Gustavo Gutierrez, wow. and they talk together. And now we have, we have uh, an alliance of faith leaders who have a moral narrative. They didn't create, we created it because of the authority. And he's recognizing we're supposed to have in the, the moral authority and constituency that we can change things and leverage things. And I think John Stott is exactly right. And it's, we're talking about Trinity. He was at Trinity for a semester when we were there. Oh, wow. And uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was off school that, that semester. But we got a call. John Stott was living in the apartment as a faculty member. He wanted to talk to the radicals. We were called the radicals. So we went into the room. And here's John Stott. I mean, he's, he and Billy Graham were probably the most... most uh, authoritative figures in global evangelicalism. And he says, well, what's your concern? So my, the students turned to me, and so I went on. I went on about racism and injustice and poverty, and I thought, I'm going to be able to give this guy, I'm going to give him an earful, you know, he's, he's this big evangelical leader, and at least he's going to hear it, you know. I went on, I went on, I went on, I went on, I went on uh, I'm looking back, I'm embarrassed at how much I probably went on he listened, and he listened. Finally, he says, are you finished? <laughs> and I said, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> he stood up, and, and we were just a ragtag bunch of seminarians. He walked over to me in a way that forced you to stand up to respond to him. Put his hands on my shoulders and said, I think what you're doing is going to make such a contribution the kingdom and the churches that I want to I want to join you I want to support you use my name for whatever you want wow then he come to see us and we'd have rigorous conversations about all kinds of things and he would be critical he'd send feedback but he in, he joined engaged us he was a contributing editor to our to sojourners yeah, back when uh, so whether you're dealing with the Black Lives Matter leaders which I love to do. I'm very impressed by these young people. I was in Ferguson, often in, in touch with, with all of them. Or whether you're dealing with um, people at Davos, we've got to, and this is where I'm not ever apologetic about my, my faith. I, mean, I, I don't mind using words to say what I believe and why. Yeah. Uh, and it's important that people understand uh, what you believe and why. And uh, and being a person of faith, you run up against what I call the two fundamentalisms. The religious fundamentalists. I've been fighting my whole life uh, on the religious right, but also now around the world. I was at a conference on uh, Islam, Islamophobia in Philadelphia last week. Scholars dealing with this stuff. And, you know, we have a serious problem with the uh, anti-Islamic mentality in this country. And Christians are trying to 
you know, terms and all of that, but we've got a serious problem with fundamentalism in Islam, yeah. and in Judaism, and in Christianity. So, but the other fundamentalists are the secular fundamentalists, yeah. who are opposed to religion per se. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm a progressive Christian, but I want to say that on the left, there are many secular people who are wonderful, and they're open, and we're allies and comrades, but there are some people on the second side who are just ideologically and, uh, 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 you know, politically committed against religion per se, and they're on the left. Yeah. They're in the Democratic as a value stance, they are. Stance. Yeah. And they're as irrational yeah. and power-hungry as the fundamentalists on the right. So how do you find, and it's not a, a, not, it's not a middle, middle way, it's a, it's a new way that brings people together Across those... Across those boundaries. Yeah. So what does it mean uh, to keep pointing to Christ well, for our children, for the CEOs, mm-hmm. politicians, and I think, and, and to with our Muslim and Jewish brothers and sisters, not to find this, um, this interfaith, common denominator, kind of meaningless word group, you know, religion, but let's all go deeper into our faith. Into our own traditions. Into our own traditions, and then find how we can uh, defend, support, collaborate together. Amen. Jim Wallace, thank you so much for being here. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>